Welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. We're a church in Manchester who love Jesus, each other, and our city. Catch up on this week's message and more. I'm John. Uh, I'm married to Em, who's down here. I'm part of the Coalition team, this church family. I've been around knocking on for 20 years. Um, we've got two kids, Olivia and Asaph. They're in, one's in youth, one's in game changers um, this morning. And uh, I'm, I get really excited about the book of Exodus, then about you. Um, it's not just Karim's dulcet Bradford tones that um, just boom in through this PA that um, get me excited. I think it's a fascinating book and I'm really excited that we are spending some time in it um, over the next kind of five, six weeks, um, heading up towards Easter. Um, it was really great. Um, last week, Ralph kicked us off kind of in the middle of the story which is good because actually, to be honest, if you start at the beginning of the story, Moses is a bit of an idiot at times. And so it's good to know where he gets to um, somewhere along the way. And um, uh, like Ralph said as well, you know, there's, there's a lot in the book of Exodus. There's like 40 something chapters and um, there's a lot of story. It's a flipping amazing story. No wonder the Prince of Egypt was such a great movie. Because the story is amazing. Plus, if you add Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston together, there can be miracles. Um, and who knows, I might be coming to a worship set near you sometime before Easter. Who, who knows? Um, but there is a lot of story, and we can't cover it all. So I would massively encourage you, one, check out, um, like Ralph said, the Bible Project Overview. In all of about 12 minutes, you'll get the entire narrative of Exodus and you'll get some kind of really great ways of kind of understanding how it's telling the story and why it's telling the story in the order that it does. But I would encourage you, like, grab half an hour and read some of Exodus. It'll take you a little bit longer than half an hour, probably, um, to read all of it. But read the story. It's a massive, epic story that... Um, that is, like, we, like we've been saying, it's the defining story of the people of Israel. It's what they kept coming back to. It's what God kept referring back to. And throughout the Psalms and the prophets, you hear about, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. And this, is a really, this was a really important story for the people of Israel. Um, and so sit with the book of Exodus. I, I think the book of Exodus, like all of those first five books of the Old Testament, was written not just to read once, think, cool story, and move on with your life. It's meant to be sat with, read once, then, then you read it again and like apply all the bits of the story that happen later on to the stuff that happens at the start. That's why we started in the middle, because there's stuff later on that shows up at the start. And we're like, ah, oh, that's the connection. This is kind of ancient Jewish meditation literature. You're not just meant to read it once and forget it. You're meant to sit with it. Let the Lord speak to you through it and puzzle over it. And we can spend a long time puzzling over this stuff because some of it's pretty confusing. But we're going to be starting in chapter three today of Exodus. So let me just give you in as few minutes as possible, which is hard because it's, like I said, it's a really good story and loads happens. In as few minutes as possible, the story of chapters one and two of Exodus. So the people of God 
the Israelites or the Hebrews, they're living in Egypt, but things are not going so well for them. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he's pretty threatened by these guys. He's like, well, there's a lot of them. They have a lot of babies. It's a bit like being at Vine Life. They have a lot of babies. And he's like, if all of these kids grow up, then we're going to be in trouble. They're going to like kick us off our own turf. So I know what, let's, let's kill all the baby boys. Murder all of the baby boys. So as soon as they're born, if it's a boy or a girl, if it's a boy, kill it. So he tells the midwives to go and do this. And thankfully the midwives refuse. Like you don't get into the midwife game if you're about killing babies. You get into the midwife game if you're about preserving life, right? So they, um, they protect the baby boys and they go and... And this is like morally ambiguous, but they go and lie to Pharaoh. They say, well, the Hebrew women, they're just too vigorous, is the word. They give birth far too quickly. The babies pop out. We can't get to them in time. And, um, and so you're going to have to think of a different plan, Pharaoh, because we, we can't do this for you. Um, and then, so Pharaoh comes up with, a, with another plan. Um, he says, we've got to deal shrewdly with these guys. The word shrewdly is meant to make you think of someone else you met in Genesis chapter 3. A crafty, serpent-like figure. I'll leave you to make that connection. But he says, we've got to deal shrewdly with these guys. So I know what we'll do. We'll throw them in the river after they're born. Um, and so Moses' mother hears about this going on. And she thinks, well, yeah, she says uh, her baby boy is really handsome. So she decided to look after him. I don't know if he was like one of those less attractive babies. Not that we have any of those around here. Because one of those less attractive babies, she wouldn't have bothered. But it says she looked at him, she saw he was, he was ruddy, he was good looking. So she's like, I've got to protect this baby. So she puts him um, in, a, in a basket, in a Moses basket. Now you know where it comes from, right? Um, she puts him in a basket. Interesting, another sort of thing that this is meant to make you think of. The Hebrew word for basket, it's actually a word for box. It's the word tebar. You only ever find this in one other story. In Genesis, it's the story of Noah's ark. So Moses is put in an ark. And he goes on the water. And he comes out the other side, protected by God's grace. And all of a sudden, he's found by Pharaoh's daughter in the bulrushes. His little Moses basket winds up, stopping there. She pulls him out, and she thinks he's pretty cute as well. So she's like, I'm going to adopt him. Uh, so she goes back, tells her dad she's going to adopt this baby. But um, as she's taking him out of the water, Moses' big sister, who we later find out is called Miriam, she shows up again in the story as well. She's a bit of a singer. But she, um, she goes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, I tell you what, you don't want to be messing about with this baby. I know a Hebrew woman that would nurse it very happily for you. She'll look after it. She'll nurture it for you. Just happens to be his mother. But... Um, this Hebrew woman, she'll look after the baby, then you can have it back when it's a bit more, you know, like tidy and that sort of thing, when it's a bit more t uh, palace ready. Okay, so, um, so Moses' sister takes the baby back. Moses spends a few years with his, um, with his birth parents, with his natural family, and then he goes to live in the palace with Pharaoh's daughter. And then we don't find out a lot about what happens for the next, it could be up to the uh it could be up to about 35, 40 years. You know, tradition tells us that Moses spent 40 years, up to the age of 40, growing up in Pharaoh's palace. 
Um, however, just off his own back, one day he decides to go out and see what's happening with the Hebrews. So he goes out and he sees how badly they are treated by their slave masters. And he gets so offended. He gets so upset. He murders one of the foremen, one of the Egyptian foremen who were driving these slaves to work. Like I told you, Moses makes some questionable choices. There's some morally ambiguous behavior going on in these early chapters. So he murders this guy, hides the body and runs away. Then he comes back the next day and he realizes that he's been seen. He tries to stop two other Hebrews from arguing. And they say, like, well, why are you interfering? You're going to kill us as well, like you killed that other guy. He realizes there's a problem. So he, what does he do? He runs away. He runs away out of Egypt into probably somewhere around the Sinai Peninsula, into the land of Midian. And uh, he happens upon some young women in distress. They're at a well. They're not able to um, water their sheep because there's some other shepherds messing about. So he drives off to the other shepherds, helps the young ladies get the water for their sheep. Uh, they go and tell their father. He's so impressed that A, he gives Moses a job, and B, gives him one of his daughters to marry. Um, and again, just another little like hyperlink, if you like. That's the language the Bible Project like to use. A little hyperlink that's meant to make you think of this other guy who met his wife at a well and ended up working for his father, tending his sheep. And you're thinking of Jacob here? Just me. But anyway, so it's meant to make you think of this story. So he finds himself in the land of Midian, working for his father-in-law. And, um, and then, again, more time passes in not a lot of detail. But we get told that it's a long time. The first Pharaoh dies, and we end Exodus chapter 2 with Israel groaning and crying out and complaining about what's going on for them because they're oppressed, they're enslaved. But God hears their cry. He remembers like he could ever forget. But he remembers that he made a covenant with this guy called Abraham. He remembers that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that he loves his people. And he's going to do something about it. So we get to Exodus chapter 3. Verses 1 to 3. It's going to be on the screen. Um, just so you know, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, it's a translation I really love, but you might have some slightly different words in your Bible. We're going to just be going through chapters three and four together. So if you've got it, like, you know, in paper form or maybe even on your phone, um, feel free to, to kind of bring that up and, and put a finger in it. And we'll, we'll kind of read through this passage together. But it says in verse one, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? So here is Moses in this wilderness. Wandering around, according to the story, having probably spent about 40 years wandering around, wondering what he's doing with his life. 
wondering where God is. Working for his father-in-law. And tending sheep on his own. He's probably pretty lonely. But there's a lot going on, even just in these three verses. So that Mount Horeb. There's another name for that place, Mount Horeb. And for some reason, it's called something else right here. But later on, we find out this is the same place that's later called Sinai. Um, and there's lots of reasons why things might be given different names in the same story. But the translation of the, the, the word Horeb means desolation. So rather than calling it Sinai, this place where later on we find out there's this incredible giving of the law and encounter with God, Moses is in the place of desolation. But there is a little sort of Hebrew joke, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, this word that says bush. Now, there's plenty of words in Hebrew. Well, there's, there's one word in Hebrew that you could use to, to say the word bush. It's a very common word. It means, also means like tree or wood. And that's the word eights. But however, the, the author of Exodus, to sort of even more make the point that this is called Sinai, he uses the word seneh which is like a pun on the word Sinai because it's got all the same letters. It doesn't really work in English. But in Hebrew, he's again pointing to the fact that, yeah, he may be in the place of desolation, but he's also in the place of Sena, of Sinai. Because he doesn't have to call it a bush. He could call it a tree. And apparently, if you go to St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai today, you can find a bush that they believe is the bush that was burning. But because it wasn't burnt up, it's still alive today. And you can go and see it. And um, apparently there's been a monastery on that site for, since about kind of 400 AD, maybe even earlier. And, and that whole time, kind of they had, they've had this bush here. Um, I'm a bit of a, I, when I dream about my life in the future, I've got several um, pilgrimages planned. It's probably got to wait till retirement because um, I'd like to be away for months and months at a time. But I'd love to go to, to, to Sinai to visit St. Catherine's Monastery, visit this, um, this bush that apparently is three and a half thousand years old and was once burning, but it's still alive. Anyway, you can go and find this bush. But there's something pretty unique about this bush. It's on fire, it's burning, but it's not consumed. And I love what Moses does. He says to himself, ah, there's something really interesting about this. I am going to take a look. It's very easy, but very easy for Moses to be terrified, to run away, to be scared. And we find out a little bit later on, he probably was pretty scared and did try and run away again. But I love his curiosity here. So anyway, he goes over to this bush in verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer. He said, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
And very quickly, God gives himself some context to Moses here. He's like, this is who I am. You can trust me. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God that your fathers worshipped. What I want to note over this next few verses that we read, there are four things that happen in God's presence. The four things that Moses gets to take a hold of in God's presence. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Sounds fun out there, doesn't it? Anyway, the first thing that God's presence gives Moses. It gives him a future. It gives him hope and direction for what's to come. The future, this will come up on the screen, the future that God promises is one where Moses has got this incredible job before him. God says, like I know things are rubbish right now, but I've got some hope for you. I've got some plans and you're going to be a part of them. God speaks to Moses out of the bush about what is coming in the future. And it's one of those things that often happens when we become aware of God around us. Is that we begin to imagine a more hopeful future. We might even begin to speak it out to one another. When God impacts our imagination and gives us a vision for what the future could look like. We call that prophecy or a prophetic word, don't we? Being able to see the future with hope, even in the place of desolation, even in the confusion of 40 years running away, God could speak a word of hope in his presence about the future. That's the future. Verse 11, Moses asked God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. I love this. God's sign to Moses that he's done it is that he will have done it. I'm like, God, you could give a bit of a better sign, please. You're going to know when you've done it because you will have done it. Cool, man. Like, I need a bit more than that, God. But Moses asked God this question, who am I that I could do all of this stuff? Like, what is it about me? Because I'm just, I'm just Moses. I'm just this guy that, you know, I was a prince of Egypt and then I murdered someone and then I ran away and I'm just here and 
you know, life looked one way and now it's looking completely different. And who am I that I can do all of this stuff? And God says, I'm, I'm with you. That's the thing that you need to know. That is the feature of your life that later on in Exodus 33, you're going to say, now, is, God, is you with me that is the defining mark of my identity? If you don't go with me, who are people going to know who I am? How are people going to know who we are and what we're all about unless it's you that goes with us? And it's this sense of identity that Moses gets from God's presence. God speaks to him about his future. And he speaks to him about his identity. He says, I'll tell you who you are. You're mine. I'll tell you who you are. You're the guy who's with me. So we've got, next slide, we've got future and we've got identity. God's presence shows us who we are. Okay. Just a little bit more Hebrew coming up. I hope that's all right. Um, verse 13. Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Again, super helpful, God. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Now, just like today, when in this kind of ancient Hebrew context, when someone had a name, it wasn't just a label, wasn't just just an empty signifier to um, kind of arbitrarily differentiate them from everyone else. Your name spoke of your character. Your name spoke of who you were. Like I know there's a bunch of us who are parents in the room and we've been very intentional to name our kids something that is meaningful. And then my parents just named me Jonathan and that was cool. Um, I don't know if they had particularly attached any meaning to it. But, you know, when we had kids, we were really intentional. We were like, we, so our daughter is called Olivia. And we were like olive trees. They represent like healing and peace and like wholeness. Uh, uh, and so like, and it sounds cool as well. Just I like the name, Olivia. So that's that was Olivia. And then Asaph, um, Asaph's a cool character in, uh, pops up a few times. He writes a bunch of Psalms. He's a percussionist, AKA drummer. Um, we named him that prophetically. He is learning the drums. It's kind of coming to pass. It also means someone that gathered. So yeah, like we gave our kids these names intentionally because we wanted to say something about who we hoped they would be and who we're dreaming them to be. So their name is more than just the thing that appears above their coat peg at school. So they know where to hang their coat, right? And I think most of us that are parents have put some intentionality into our kids. But like when God names himself, it's time to sit up and pay attention. When God tells you who he is, we need to take a hold of that. 
And it is a bit confusing, right? And all the best Bible scholars through generations have sort of wrestled with what does this even mean? What does I am who I am mean? You know, Bible translators can't even agree. Like you read it in one translation, it will say, I am who I am. Then you'll probably get a footnote that says, or I will be what I will be. Or it might even mean I'll create what I will create. Or, but there's this connection to this very essence of being, what it means to exist. And, you know, God says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And then we don't really get this reading in English. But in verse 15 where it says, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, and so on. So where it says this word Lord, I couldn't get it to do on, on this um, on this program. But in your Bible, you'll probably find where it says the word Lord, in verse 15, it's in this small caps. Okay, so it's the word Lord, but it's capital letters, but it's smaller. And that's there to represent this name Yahweh. So that's, which means like he is. So every time you see the word Lord in lower caps in the Old Testament, it's representing the word Yahweh, unless you've got like some super niche and there are translations out there, super niche Bible translation that has the word Yahweh. Or if you're like King James, um, then you'll probably read the word Jehovah in there. And and that is just the, the third person version of I am. It means he is. You know, last week Ralph was talking about God being a person. Or at least God being personal. And God has a name that describes who he is. Because he's not just an entity out there, but a personality that wants to know you and be known by you. Now, if you want to unpack a bit more of the meaning of this name, Yahweh, there's a great four-minute video on YouTube. Check out the Bible Project, Yahweh. They give you this, this lovely graphics. Um, and instead of Karim, you get two American dudes, but it's still pretty good. Um, and they talk about what this name, Yahweh, means. And their Hebrew pronunciation is like much better than me because at least one of them has a PhD um, in Hebrew. Uh, and so, but like God is saying, look, I am the one that is. What it means to exist is me. Like there isn't, you know, the New Testament talks about in Jesus, everything is held together. Like God is the very ground, the very center of being. What it means to exist is God. Like when you imagine how the universe was made, like what, maybe you don't think about these things. I think about these things sometimes. Like if the universe is like giant and infinite and it's like expanding forever, but hold on, all of that exists, exists within God. Like this infinite thing can sit somehow inside of an even more infinite person. When you go to the when you get to the bottom of it all, before anything was, God was, and everything that exists exists within God. He is the one that is. And for us to know what it really means to exist is to know the one that is what it is to exist. There's lots of is's and bees because language doesn't quite do justice to this stuff. But God reveals his character to Moses. So we don't just get 
a future hope. We don't just know about our identity, but we get a revelation of who God is. God's presence reveals his character to us. And then the story carries on a little bit. God tells Moses what he's to do. Interestingly, first time he says, I'm going to lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then the next thing he's like, I'll go and tell Pharaoh that you just need to go and worship in the desert for three days. I don't quite understand like how these all sit together. But hey, like is God saying lie to Pharaoh? We don't know, but it's just there in the text. So I'm going to talk about it. Anyway, we move on to chapter four. Verse one, Moses says, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground that became a snake and he ran from it. <laughs> there he goes again, running away, Moses. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And God goes on to give him another sign. He puts his hand inside his cloak, comes out, it's covered in like boils and skin diseases, and he puts it back in, takes it out again, and it's healed again. Um, so God gives him these like powerful demonstrations. And he also like says to God later on, like, how am I going to know what to say? And God's like, I'm going to, all right, I'll send your brother. And we'll, well, first God's like, I'll, I'll tell you what to say. I'll give you the words. And then he's like, oh, God, no, I, I really don't want to go. And he says, I'll send your brother. He will do all the talking for you. Um, just one quick note again. Do you remember I said about crafty Pharaoh? He's meant to remind you of the snake. Um, and the other thing about Pharaohs is I don't know if you've ever done um kind of a ancient Egypt dress-up day with your kids for school. But the thing about pharaohs is they've got these big hood things, right? And it's meant to look like a cobra. They're meant to look like a snake. Like that is the whole point. So when Moses, when God's turning Moses' staff into a snake and then Moses is able to take control of the snake and turn it back into a staff, he's saying, I'm going to give you power over the snake that is pharaoh. It's not just some like parlor trick. It's not just a bit of magic trick to... To, to impress anyone, it actually symbolizes that he's going to have power over Pharaoh. There's a lot of layers in this. It's good fun. But ultimately, in God's presence, Moses is empowered to go and do what it is that God is asking him to do. God is giving him everything that he needs to go and be successful. So we've got a future hope, we've got our identity, we've got a revelation of who God is, and we're empowered in God's presence. Put those things together, you spell the word fire, and I thought that was really handy, because there's a burning bush, and it was on fire. So I just, help me remember, that when I meet God, I've got hope and a vision for the future. I learn who I am, I learn who he is, and he equips me and sends me out. But here's the thing, God's presence isn't a magic bullet. God's presence doesn't fix everything for Moses in this instance. You know, right at the end of all of this, he's met, he's met God in this burning bush. He's seen this incredible, miraculous thing. God's 
revealed his name to him, a name that apparently up to this point no one else has known him by. He's literally seen two miracles and he's had this conversation with God. And then he says in Exodus 4.13, please, Lord, send someone else. Like, what are you doing, Moses? Like the Moses of Exodus 3 and 4 is a long way from the Moses of Exodus 33. Not just because there's 29 chapters in between them. Thanks. Um, like Moses has matured and spent time again and again and again with God. Moses of chapter 4 wouldn't have been ready to say, please show me your glory. It took time. And I am, I'm 100% a believer that everything can change in a moment. I'm 100% a believer that things take time with God. And those two things are true at the same time. It's a tension that we hold. We believe in the power of God to transform and change. And we see it happen around us. And we say, Lord, you've done it for them. Would you do it for me as well? But at the same time, the stuff in our lives that doesn't move, the stuff in our lives that doesn't shift, we don't become the people that we'd want to be overnight. And I think God is far less committed to efficiency and time-saving than we are. God was happy for Moses to spend this whole first 40 years of his life growing up in the palace and then another 40 years hanging out in the wilderness before spending 40 years navigating the desert. I mean, one of the bonuses of having a, a, a paper Bible is it's got these maps in the back. If you look at the map of how the Israelites went from Egypt to Israel, the map of the Exodus, it's not efficient. It wasn't handy. They spent, and no one can even agree exactly where they went. It was that inefficient. I sometimes wonder if in 2023, we're a bit too keen for things to change overnight. Because, you know, Amazon Prime. And... Like we get disappointed when Netflix don't release the whole series all at once and we have to wait like a whole week to watch the next episode. Like God is really all right with taking a long time sometimes. God is really all right with the fact that Moses is a bit of a letdown in chapter four because he knew that one day in the future, Exodus 33 Moses would be bold enough to say, show me your glory. So wherever you are today, wherever you find yourself, maybe that wilderness word was for you this morning. Maybe you're wandering around thinking, God, I don't know what your plan is here. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe God just isn't done with you yet. Maybe God's journey for you is not today, but little by little, by getting to know God's presence over time, you become the kind of person that could say confidently, boldly, God, show me your glory. And I think we can raise our expectations.
I think we can learn not just to wait from Sunday to Sunday to experience God's presence. Like I love when we get together. I love when we sing. I love that there's just this beautiful mix of like our emotional response to God and his spirit amongst us and the fact that we get to create something beautiful in a moment and that there's all this other stuff going on for us when we gather together, when we sing together. But I think we could raise our expectations that we could meet God even in the wilderness, even in the times when nothing else is happening. I was um, reminded of this poem um, this week that is by uh, a 19th century um, poet called Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's part of a much longer work called Aurora Lee. Um, but this particular poem is all about how, man, we like to separate earth and heaven, don't we? We like to have one pile of things that is sacred and one pile of things that is secular. This is my life with God and this is everything else. And this whole poem is about, um, I mean, it's like the language feels pretty dated, so I'm not going to read it all. Uh, it would be really long. But it kind of as she approaches the, the zenith of this um, particular poem, she says this, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. Only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Nothing wrong with blackberries. But wouldn't you rather see the fire of God in the bush? I believe that God is out there waiting to meet you in the wilderness, waiting to be the fire in the bush that probably you've walked past every day. Isaiah 6 says that the earth is filled with the glory. And the Habakkuk says one day the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The earth is filled with the glory of God and it's going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. I love that song, um, Holy Spirit, by Brian and Katie Torr. I love how they say, let us become more aware of your presence. Because God, if God is the one who exists everywhere, if God is the one who is exactly what it means to exist. If there's no place you can go when God isn't there, then surely God is everywhere and is available to be met. We're going to run out of time in just a minute. So I'm going to stop talking. But there's three things that Moses, that struck me about Moses when he meets God in this in this wilderness place. The first is that one, he is in the wilderness, right? Because if we're going to position ourselves to meet with God, just three little things that I noticed about Moses. One, he's in this wilderness. I think wilderness to me means an absence of distraction, means an absence of all the things that would want to be noisy in our lives. If we can dial those down, get somewhere quiet, we can find a space to be with God. Moses was curious. Moses responded when he saw the bush was aflame. He went and saw it. He went and had a better look. If we can pay attention to what God's doing and go and explore it, I think we'll find him. The third thing is that God told Moses to take off his sandals. There were sandals that were dirty from walking around after sheep. 
his sandals that carried the dust and the dirt of all the places that he'd been. He had to purify himself. He had to put aside the stuff that was stuck to him and that wasn't good for him. And you can apply those however you want. But for me, that looks like getting somewhere quiet, listening to Jesus and trying to respond in whatever way he speaks to me. And it looks like just getting rid of the stuff that is junk, that is dirty, that's messy in my life, wherever I can. So I want to pray for you that you meet God in the wilderness. We're just going to do it quietly. I'm not even going to put any music on. We're just going to do it here and now. That you would meet God in a way that gives you a future hope. It tells you who you are. It tells you who he is. And that empowers you for what he's asking you to do. So would you be kind enough to stand up with me. And I know that parents, you're gonna to need to go in about 30 seconds and grab your kids from Game Changers and Explorers. But, Lord, today and every day, would we be people that find ourselves positioned to meet you. God, just like Moses was in the wilderness, away from distraction, away from noise, would we find a space to be with you? Lord, would we be curious enough to pursue you when we see you moving? Lord, we, would we be people that take off the dirt and take off the stuff that clings to us and be washed clean by you? Would we lay aside the things that hinder us that we're ready to meet with you? Lord, I pray for my friends in this room as we're gathered here today. Lord, you speak hope and vision to our future. God, would you show us who we are in the light of who you are? God, would you give us everything that we need to do what it is that you're asking us to do? Amen. And just be still for a moment before we head out from here. I hope you enjoyed today's message. If you want to find out more, head to our website, findlife.co.uk, or follow us on Instagram. God bless and see you soon.